اللهم باحسان الى يوم الدين اما بعد عن ابي برده عن ابيه ابي موسى الاشعري رضي الله عنه ان النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم بعثه الى اليمن فساله عن اشربه تصنع بها فقال وما هي قال البتع والمزر فقيل لي ابي فقيل لابي برده وما البتع قال نبيذ العسل والمزر نبيذ الشعير فقال اي صلى الله عليه وسلم كل مسكر حرام خرجه البخاري وخرجه مسلم ولفظ له ولفظه قال بعثني رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم انا ومعاذ الى اليمن فقلت يا رسول الله ان شرابا يصنع بارضنا يقال له المزر من الشعير والشراب يقال له البتع من العسل فقال كل مسكر حرام وفي روايه للمسلم فقال كل كل ما اسكر عن عن الصلاه فهو حرام so respected brothers and sisters inshallah we're continuing with, with, this, with these hadith that are the addendum to the arba'in of imam, of imam nawawi they were the hadith that was added to this collection by imam ibn rajab al hanbali um, ibn rajab al hanbali he uh, he took the compilation of imam, of imam nawawi and he added eight additional hadith that he thought were very fitting to be added with them and these are those hadith that encompass a great deal of the teachings of Islam within it that are paramount to Islam and of, of great importance. So not only did he add these additional eight hadith to make it an even 50, he also commented on, on each of the hadith and gave them a great deal of clarification and explanation with regards to each one. So we're continuing from the back and we've reached um, hadith number uh, uh, 47. Um, oh, sorry, 46. And this hadith is narrated by Abu Burda, the son of Abu Musa al Ash'ari, that he heard from his father that the Prophet had dispatched him to Yemen. So when he dispatched him to Yemen, when he went there, he saw situations you know, uh, that were relevant to the people of Yemen. And so he asked. When he came back, he asked the Prophet ﷺ about a drink or certain drinks that he saw people consuming in Yemen. So he asked the Prophet ﷺ about these drinks that they were concocting. And the Prophet ﷺ asked him, what are they? So he explained, uh, they're called Al-Bit' Wal-Mizr. So one of the narrators, they asked the son of Abu Musa, what is this Bit'ah and what is this Mizr that has been referred to? So he explained that uh, Bit'ah, is a fermented drink that it comes from honey. Probably, I'm guessing, uh, what we would call in modern day me- uh, med or mead. And the other one, mizr, is a fermented drink that is concocted from barley, very likely something similar to beer. So when the Prophet ﷺ was explained this, he, he, he summarized it and he says, Kullu muskirin haram. That anything that intoxicates, it's haram. In a variant that's narrated in, in Sahih Muslim, Something similar comes, and Abu Musa narrates an, that me and Muadh an, were dispatched to Yemen. So, when, meaning when they returned, he said, I asked the Messenger of Allah, O Messenger of Allah, indeed there is a drink which is uh, concocted, which is made in our land, which people ferment in our land. And it's called Al Mizr 
which is made from barley, and another drink which is called al-bit', which is made from honey. So the Prophet ﷺ explained, every intoxicant is haram. In another variant that's also narrated in Sahih Muslim, another hadith comes where the Prophet ﷺ is addressing intoxicants and he says, anything which intoxicates a person and takes them away from their salat, that is haram. Okay. So there's a couple of foundational matters that are discussed here. And the reality is there's many hadith that discuss the overall theme and the overall discussion of intoxicants. But these hadith, these elucidate this essential point of the concept of anything which is intoxicating is something that a Muslim should stay away from. It is something which is prohibited. It's something that a person needs to stay away from. And when we're talking about intoxicants, what is it referring to? Ibn Rajab explains, and a person might ask, why this, go through all this discussion and all this explanation? Is because whatever time, whatever era, whatever place you're in, there's always going to be new beverages, new drinks that people come up with. New intoxicants, right? Now, you know, people, they go into things that aren't even like liquid, right? People have edibles and all these different things. Inshallah, we're going to get to that discussion near the end. But all these different forms of intoxicants and intoxications, he's giving the summary, the conclusion of all of it, right? And he's highlighting a couple of important points of understanding what is the issue with intoxicants, which is, which is problematic in Islam, if it's not already clear, right on face value. So he says, these intoxicants, they're all those things which cover up the intellect. They basically intoxicate, right? They, they do something, they alter a person's intellect, they alter a person's state of, of mind. This is something which is basically the issue with intoxicants. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He mentions in His book the reason behind why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has forbidden intoxicants, or at least one of them. And one of the first things that is mentioned with regards to the, the reason behind why intoxicants are, have been prohibited is that Or rather, to give some background, he mentions the first discussion in the book of Allah that came forth regarding why intoxicants are haram. Because remember, there was an era in Islam before the prohibition of intoxic intoxicants came down, before the prohibition of specifically wine came down, people would drink wine. Bear in mind, the era, the, 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 the era of the Prophet ﷺ was the era of wahi. It was the era in which revelation was constantly coming down. So until that revelation came down, the people didn't know what was lawful, what was unlawful. What is obligated, what is not obligated. They were in this process of constantly growing, constantly learning. And it was that hunger and thirst that kept them going. So the people, the Sahaba radiallahu ta'ala anhum, they used to look eagerly for the revelation to come down. Because it would teach them more about how to get closer to Allah. It was a sign of the hypocrites that they used to you know, loathe the, 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 the revealing of revelation because they were always afraid it's going to say something against them. So the Sahaba, they had this quality. And even, even some of the previous nations, they had this quality that they used to hate revelation. Right? They used to hate Jibreel alayhi salam. They mentioned about the Yahud, that they used to hate Jibreel alayhi salam. Why? Because every time Jibreel alayhi salam comes, he has a new revelation. Allah asks about them, why do you hate Jibreel? Because he doesn't, he doesn't come down except by the command of Allah. Meaning if you have something against Jibreel you have something against Allah. So the believer's attitude is they savor, they appreciate, they love whatever is being revealed to them by Allah. It's mentioned about one time that after the Prophet had passed away, a group of the Sahaba, they went to go visit Umm Ayman. Umm Ayman was a very elderly woman that was in Medina. And she was the woman that the Prophet would call her his mother, 
Because in relationship, remember, you have the literal mother, but in Islamically speaking, if a woman gives milk to a child, they become what's known as the Umm uh, Rada'a, right? The mother of nursing. They have a relationship similar to that of a mother. We won't call it the haqiqi, the literal mother. But the nature of that relationship, because that person is someone who was engaged in raising that child, engaged in fostering that child, engaged in taking care of that child, they have a right in Islam similar to that of the mother. So Umm Ayman was an individual, she was there from the very birth of the Prophet ﷺ. From his very birth she was there, and she was one of the women that actually gave him milk when he was young. And she helped raise the Prophet ﷺ. And the Prophet ﷺ mentioned about her that she's a woman of paradise as well. So you can imagine how close she was to the Prophet ﷺ. She was an African slave that had been freed. So she had a lot of close ties to the Prophet ﷺ. She was within like the household of the Prophet ﷺ. Right? From amongst the categories of people in a person's household is what's known as mawali. Right? Fleet, people that, that were in slavery that a person freed. And she was in that category, she helped raise the Prophet. She was very, very close to the Prophet ﷺ, Umm Ayman. So you can imagine when she passed, the Sahaba wanted to come to this senior elderly woman to also console her, also to take solace from her as well. So when they went to go visit her, she started crying. And she explained to them that the reason that I'm crying is not because of the, of the passing of the Prophet ﷺ. Because the Prophet ﷺ has gone to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He's in a better state. The Prophet ﷺ is with whom he wants to be with. The Prophet was given a choice at the time of, of his passing, he chose to be with Allah. He said the reason, she said, the reason that I'm crying, crying is because there was a gateway that was open from before, a gateway where we had a direct connection between us and the heavens, a direct connection between us and, 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 and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, which was this mode of revelation, and now that gateway has closed. We had a direct link to Allah. And that link is now closed. Now we have the book of Allah, we have that connection, but the act of revelation, that act of revelation no longer comes down. The reality is this was the attitude the believers had with regards to revelation. So like this, the, the revelation of many things came down in stages. Alcohol in the beginning, it wasn't something that people knew to be haram. It was something that was part of the culture. In fact, it was a huge part of their culture. Drinking was a very big part of the culture of the Jahili Arabs, the Arabs of, uh, uh, of, the, of, of the era of ignorance from the time of before the Prophet is being sent. And similarly, many of the Sahaba, because they had not learned yet, they didn't know yet, they, didn't even, they weren't even aware of the prohibition yet, they also used to drink. Now Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had given some of the Sahaba this intuition that they realized they saw certain harms in drinking, so they would never drink. Abu Bakr was known to be from amongst those people who, who saw the foulness of, of, of alcohol, so he never used to drink. But it was not something prohibited in the beginning. So there were certain Sahaba that did drink before the prohibition came down. So the first stage of the prohibition of alcohol, what is the background behind it? That some people, they got up to, to offer their salat, and in the course of offering their salat, they jumbled up the ayat of the Qur'an. They jumbled up the ayat of the Qur'an, literally saying the opposite of what they intended. It comes in some narrations that they were reading surah, قُلْ يَا أَيُّهَا الْكَافِرُونَ And instead of saying, oh you disbelievers, I do not believe in what you believe in, they said, we believe in what you believe, and you do not believe in what we do not believe. They completely jumbled up the words. What is the verse? قُلْ يَا أَيُّهَا الْكَافِرُونَ لَا أَعْبُدُ مَا تَعْبُدُونَ Oh disbelievers, I don't believe what you believe. They opposite it. They made it opposite. Literally, a very dangerous meaning. 
but they were in a state of intoxication. They didn't know no better. And they didn't even know about the prohibition. So the first introduction to the prohibition of alcohol was when this incident happened. The revelation came down that, Ya ayyuhalladheena amanu, la taqrabu salata wa antum sukara. Right? The O you who believe, do not come near the prayer while you're in a state of being intoxicated. Until you know what you're saying. So the first thing we want to note right off the beginning is, intoxication is something which actually holds a person back from actual prayer. Right? That in itself for many people of intelligence, many of the Sahaba that were very close to the Prophet they immediately realized, wait a minute, this is a very big deal. That if a, person's gonna, if a person cannot do salat when they're intoxicated, how can we afford to be in a state where we can't remember Allah? How can we afford to be in a state where we can't submit to Allah? This was a wake-up call for many. Many people already left it. But we want to bring our attention in our day and age. We're trying to learn certain lessons here. We learned something very valuable here. That one of the main problems with intoxicants is it becomes a hindrance in a person's ability to remember Allah. Brothers and sisters, one of the greatest gifts that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given us as a creation is our intellect. How many ayat of the Qur'an does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mention? These are signs for those who reflect. These are signs for those who think. So many ayat Allah speaks about reflecting, pondering, the usage of one's aql and one's intellect. Allah refers to this. And Allah mentions that the, the, the signs of Allah, they'll be recognized those, by those people that utilize this intellect. What does intoxicating do? It clouds that intellect. And this is one of the biggest disasters of intoxication. That this gift, which is a tool that Allah gave us to recognize Him, we're actually clouding it. We're making it murky. For a person to just ponder over this point alone, that this, intel, this, this, this quality of being intoxicated, this quality of being inebriated, it becomes a hindrance, it becomes a blockade, it becomes something that prevents a person from the dhikr of Allah. Literally, why Allah created us. Allah says in the Quran, وَمَا خَلَقْتُ الْجِنَّ وَالْإِنسَ إِلَّا لِيَعْبُدُونَ That the only reason we created mankind and jinn, right? This is nafi with istithna. It gives the benefit of hasar. That the only reason why mankind and jinn was created was for the worship of Allah. And here you're bringing something into the life which literally hinders a person from being able to fulfill their purpose. Not only that, when does a person worship Allah? When does a person worship Allah? Is it only in salat that we worship Allah and we don't remember Allah for the rest of the day? No, the reality of a slave of Allah is that a person at all times, at all junctures, at all moments, they're engaged in the worship of Allah. The obedience of Allah and staying away from his disobedience, this is also worship of Allah. So those things, that tool, that is, a, that is one of our greatest tools to connect us to the worship of Allah, we're, we're literally breaking that tool. We're literally abusing one of the greatest gifts that Allah gave us. Allah gives us intellect and we're like, you know what, let me turn this intellect off. This is one of the biggest disasters of intoxicants. One of the main reasons why intoxicants is haram. So much so that you're in such a state of, 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 of uh, bewilderment or you're in such a state of you know, muted senses that Allah says, don't even come to salat. A person might think, okay, that person that's drunk, they need Allah more than anyone else, right? This is what we would think naturally. 
The person who's in that situation where they're drunk, the person who's in that situation where they're high, the person who's in that situation where they have a drug habit, they need Allah more than any other time at that moment, right? But because they've impaired their judgment, because they've impaired their intellect, because they've impaired their emotions, because they're in the state of impairment, Allah says, don't even come to worship because you're not even in a state where, you're, where you, the, the remembrance will have its effect. Even though at that moment when you need Allah, even at that time, this is a type of mahrumi. This is a type of deprivement. So a Muslim should be definitely at all times worried of being in a state where if I want to call on Allah, Allah is even saying, don't call on me in this state. Don't get me wrong. Inshallah, if a person were to call Allah in that state, right, to the best of their abilities, we have hope Allah will accept. But we're talking about the command of Allah here. That He says, don't even come to Salat in that state. I still remember one time, I was in college, we were doing, uh, uh, we were doing uh, Salat in our, in, in our apartment. And there was one of our, you know, a friend of one of my roommates was visiting. And we're getting up for Salat, and everyone's getting up for Salat, so one of my other roommates asked him, aren't you going to pray with us? And he's just like, he has this very embarrassed look on his place. He's like, man, I, I, I got to be honest, I just I got a little high a little bit earlier, and you know, I'm still a little bit buzzed. I, you know, I, I shouldn't do Salat with you guys. Imagine that state of embarrassment That you have a group of Muslims Getting ready to submit to Allah And you're like, you know what, I can't, I can't. I'm in this state where I sh- I'm not allowed to, to, to come to Allah in Salat This is literally a, a state where a person is being deprived That that person that needs to connect to Allah They can't even properly connect to Allah So he, mentioned, he starts this discussion off Understanding that this is what that level of deprivation is for a person who gets intoxicated. So when this happened, some Sahaba made this mistake, the announcement was made that no one should approach Salat while they're in that state of intoxication. This was the first stage by which intoxication was first being restricted. Remember the prohibition of intoxications that came down in stages. Before this, it was to the extent of it being, this, this is something harmful, so stay away from it if you can. But now it's actually being mentioned. Right? That if a person is in a state of intoxication, don't come to Salat. The first level of prohibition. Then eventually the prohibition came in its totality. That indeed wine and gambling and, uh, and uh, idol worship and divination arrows, these are filth from the actions of shaitan, so stay away from it. This is when wine drinking, alcohol drinking, intoxicating became outright prohibited. And then Allah also explains right after. So that perhaps you may be successful. Allah then explains in this verse what is the issue, what is the cause, what is the problem with drinking alcohol and why are we pushed and spurned towards it so much. Indeed, shaitan only wants that he should throw you headlong into enmity and hatred through the drinking of wine, through, the, through gambling so that he may prevent you thereby from the remembrance of Allah and from prayer. So will you not then stay away from it? Allah is telling us outright, brothers and sisters, look at how the entire alcohol industry. 
right? Alcohol is not something which is, is a, like a standalone, right? People don't drink alcohol like it's like coffee and tea. There's usually some other thing, there's, there's an entire entrapment connected with alcohol. There's entrapments connected with, 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 with intoxicants. They're not free from other types of sin. Right? They're not free from other types of sin. They're usually associated and connected to other things. Shaitan knows this is one thing when a person's, when a person's judgment is clouded, when a person is in a state of intoxicants, they, when a person is in a situation where their emotions can get overwhelmed, what happens? That person is a lot more easier to prod. That person is a lot more easier to spurn to doing more wrong. When a person is within their senses, it's much harder for shaitan to prey on them. P-R-E-Y. Pray. Right? To take advantage of them. Why? Because they're going to be on their game. But when the, when the aql, when the intellect gets clouded, when the intellect gets, gets murky, now all of a sudden shaitan has the upper hand. A person's in a heightened state of euphoria, a person's in a heightened state of depression, a person's in a heightened state of whatever it may be, a person's high, or a person's drunk. The point being is, the intellect has in some ways been clouded by emotion, has in some ways clouded by other feelings. Now that person is a, person's, is a shaitan's plaything. The deeper they get into intoxication, the more they are vulnerable, the more they are susceptible to the promptings of shaitan. That's what shaitan wants. That's what shaitan wants. This person is more susceptible. Now some people come with an argument, but you know what, I can hold my liquor. But you know what, weed doesn't do that to me. But you know what, whatever, whatever, whatever I have a tolerance, etc., etc., etc. What is this argument that they come with then? That they can handle it? First and foremost, remember brothers and sisters, what makes something haram? That Allah said it's haram. That the Messenger of Allah spoke about his haramness. Right? I just made up a word. The Messenger of Allah spoke about something being forbidden. The moment we know from the sources of revelation, Allah and His Messenger, we know something is prohibited, we stay away from it. Allah even acknowledges in the Quran that there's benefit in alcohol, right, specifically benefit in wine. But He says its harms outweigh its benefits. Its harms outweigh its benefits. Allah is not oblivious. Allah knows well. Allah made a haram despite that. Allah made it haram despite the, the, the fact that a person can argue, what about this benefit, what about that benefit? Allah made something haram, it's haram. The Messenger of Allah mentioned something mean haram, Allah says in the Quran, مَا آتَاكُمُ رَسُولُ فَخُذُوا وَمَا نَهَاكُمْ عَنْهُ فَانْتَهُوا What the Messenger of Allah gives you, take it. And what He prohibits you from, stay away from it. That's, for a believer, that's sufficient. When Allah and His Messenger in a hadith or in a verse of the Quran, it clarifies some of the wisdoms behind why something is haram. That's something being shared with us to remind us, to educate us, to make us value the fact that it's been prohibited from us. Not to make excuses that it's all good. Allah, if He never told us why, we still have the obligation upon us to obey Him. It's like if your boss comes to you and tells you to submit a report. My dad used to mention this story to me. He says, there's a story that one time you had a group of construction workers. And these construction workers were on their break. So they're on their break and all of a sudden the lead engineer comes. And he comes to them, he's like, look man, I, 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 need, one, you know, I need you guys to come and help me out with something. Uh, can you come and like, dig a hole here? So they come, you know, they dig a hole. He looks, he's like, no, that's not it. Okay, cover it up, cover it up, cover it up. Can you guys dig a hole here? They go and they, they dig it up. He's like, no, no, that's not it. 
And he goes and he's, and he's taking them around place to place. Can you dig a hole here? Can you dig a hole here? And he has them dig holes and cover them up. And these guys are getting annoyed. Like, man, this guy has nothing better to do. He sees us on our break. He's, he just, he just, he's just upset that we're relaxing for a bit. So he tells us to come and just randomly dig holes and cover them up. He has nothing better to do. He just wants to torture us. He just wants us to put us to work. Finally, the engineer is like, man, you guys, you know what? I, I'm really sorry that I, I wasted your time. There's supposed to be a gas line here. And like, I'm worried that when we're going to start digging, it's going to blow up in our faces. But you know what? I couldn't find it. You know what? Forget it. For today, we'll figure it out tomorrow. And they're like, oh, yeah, that's kind of a big deal, a gas line. When the boss came and said, you know what? Dig a hole here. Why is he asking them to dig a hole? If he explained it or he didn't explain it, the purpose is this is going to be something that is very dangerous for you. If you start drilling here and you hit a gas main, you're going to have an explosion. You're all going to die. Whether he explained to you why you dig the hole or he didn't explain to you why you dig the hole, do what he told you to do. As an employee, we understand that sometimes our bosses may not explain everything to us. But we understand as a role as an employee, we're supposed to obey. Yeah, we may get annoyed sometimes, we may get frustrated sometimes. But if you want to retain our job, it's a good idea to listen to your boss. If you want to retain your, 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 your job, it's a good idea to, to, to listen to your boss. Brothers and sisters, whether Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala explains something to us or He doesn't explain something to us, our obligation is to submit to the will of Allah. We're slaves of Allah. We aren't even employees of Allah. Right? Some people shy away from the term slave when we say Abd doesn't mean anything but slave. Why is the word abd used? First of all, understand, don't use the context of slavery in America, you know, chattel slavery where there was a lot of oppression and a lot of, you know, uh, improprieties that took place. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is fair and just and merciful. But truly, why are we referred to as the slaves of Allah? Because we don't have a choice in the matter. You can't all of a sudden say, oh Allah, you know what, I choose to like not be your slave anymore. All that happens is we still have to answer to Him on the day of resurrection. When Allah gives us a command, brothers and sisters, whether it's explained to us or not, we submit to it. And we also understand that Allah, in His infinite wisdom, Allah knows more than me. Allah is wiser than me. Allah didn't do this for no reason. Allah, in His infinite knowledge, in His infinite wisdom, prescribed what He prescribed. So when we talked about these points with regards to alcohol and wine and intoxicants and, and all these things, understand, these are things that are being explained to us to help our hearts come to more ease and realize. Because unfortunately, shaitan comes to us, nafs comes to us, and makes all the excuses in the world, it's all good, it's okay, it's not a big deal. No, it's a very big deal. And all it takes is for a person to just think for a couple seconds with an open mind. But you can't think with an open mind if you're drunk all the time. You can't think with an open mind if you're intoxicated all the time. If a person were really to think and ponder, they would realize there's no good in this. And which is why we see some of the intelligent people in history, including the Sahaba, many of them, they never touched alcohol even before Islam. Right? Even from non-Muslims, it's famous about Benjamin Franklin. Right? Didn't want to have nothing to do with alcohol. Why? Just look at what drunk people do. Any intelligent person will realize that getting, you know, taking away your greatest tool is not a very good thing. The thing that separates us from the animals, one of the biggest things is our, is our aql, is our intellect. Even the scientists will agree with that point. Even the atheists will agree with that point. And now that thing that is like our greatest tool, let's shut it down. That doesn't make sense to anyone with a, with a little bit of intellect. So he's explaining that, look, when a person is in this state of intoxication, they become the plaything of shaitan. And what happens? Shaitan uses this. He uses the situation 
to prevent a person from being able to remember Allah. For, to get a person to become unmindful and heedless of Allah. When people do things stupid, one of the biggest things that cause people to do things stupid is to be in that state of intoxication. Which is why it's called, uh, in, in some times it's called Ra'sul Amrad, the head of diseases. Right? That the, 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 the thing that causes more issues, more problems to spread. One of the things is this alcohol, this, this intoxicant. So now that we've understood this point, that these intoxicants are haram, and these intoxicants, how important it is for our deen. Brothers and sisters, many of us may be wondering, you know, alhamdulillah, I don't have a, a drug a problem. Alhamdulillah, I don't have a substance abuse problem. Why go into this? Because we have to realize that this is a growing epidemic in the Muslim communities. There are more and more Muslims that are getting stuck on this. I was just talking with uh, Brother Khidr right on the way, that usually the people that come to the masajid, they don't really have alcohol problems. Right? Usually people that come to the masajid, it's rare that, you know, unfortunately it's growing, but they don't have like drug problems. Why are we discussing this? It's because we need, to be a, we need to clarify, we need to share this point. Because unfortunately it's becoming a wider thing. The legalization of marijuana has caused Muslims to fall into this trap that, you know what, it's legal now. It's legal according to who? Not according to the, the, the Sharia. When did intoxicants become legal in Sharia? Medical use is a different thing we'll talk about at the end. But the point being is intoxicants, there was a brother I remember who would ask me, like, you know what, now that you know, weed is legal in California, what do you think about me like, opening up a dispensary? I'm like, how does that make any sense for a Muslim? Point being, we'll get into that discussion a little bit later on. The point being is Muslims are falling more and more into this. We need to realize and value the fact that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has saved us from this. What causes most Muslim, masjid-going Muslims? And sometimes it happens to people. Maybe people had a history. Maybe people had a past. I've had, I, you know, I met Muslims that, for example, they came into Islam later in their life. Or they converted to Islam later in their life. They are, maybe they're struggling with this. They're struggling with this and it's something that they're trying to overcome. This is to remind a person and assist a person in realizing how grave is this disease of alcohol, how grave is this disease of getting intoxicated and high and drunk. So this is something for us to know and this is something for us to share. When a person realizes the harms of this, right, and realizes how much it holds them back in other aspects of their life, other aspects of their deen, A person should remind themselves that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created the cosmos, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created creation, so we can spend our time to recognize Him. So we can use this intellect in beneficial ways. To cloud that, it takes away from that whole experience. Now, when people go into intoxicants, why do people go into intoxicants? Now people will sometimes come with this argument when it comes to non-alcoholic intoxicants. That you know what? The inebriation that alcohol has It's not the same with, for example, with marijuana It's not the same experience The person is not as limited The point being is, brothers It's not about how much it limits you How much it benefits you How much it harms you The fact is, it's something that does intoxicate you The moment it intoxicates you It takes you out of the state that, that Allah meant for you to be in that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala He wants us to use our time beneficially This is something that causes a person to literally dumb down Literally causes a person to turn out. Literally causes a person to check out. This is something that a person should do everything in their capacity to stay away from. Now, a person may argue then that you know what? In the Quran, it doesn't say anything about you know weed being haram. 
I'm using weed as an example because people consider it to be one of the softer drugs in comparison to other drugs. You don't find very many people trying to argue that heroin is okay. You don't find many people trying to argue that like LSD is okay. People, like, unfortunately, some Muslims are falling into this trap of arguing that it's okay for Muslims to like, you know, have you know, uh, recreational marijuana because it's not as dangerous as alcohol. Even if we concede that point, it's not as dangerous as alcohol, it still intoxicates. So now we see this concept that the, the same ills that are found in alcohol use, the same ills are found in marijuana use. Remember, Allah didn't say that the alcohol is haram because of drunk driving. The root issue with alcohol abuse, the root issue with wine abuse is it intoxicates. It intoxicates, that's the biggest issue. You can't turn to Allah in Salat at that time. You can't remember Allah. Your, t your, your, your senses are dulled. The very fact that it that intoxicates you, that's what makes it haram. You find that same thing in everything else. We know the illah. We know the root cause of why it's haram. So thereafter, anything else you find that in, that also becomes haram. And this is why the Prophet, he explained in the hadith we talked about. Why did Ibn Rajab bring that hadith? It's because the people came to him and says, well, we see this, this intoxicating beverage that people had in Yemen, that it's not wine, it's made from barley, it's not wine, it's made from honey. What did the Prophet say? It doesn't matter, anything that intoxicates is haram. Anything that intoxicates, the Prophet is pointing out, what is the root cause of, of these things being haram? Is it's the fact that it has the effect of intoxication. The, the fact that it has this effect of clouding that judgment, the fact that it has this effect of altering our emotions. Bas, that's sufficient. That's what makes it haram. So whatever it applies to then, it applies to it. Now we go into the, the next stage of this discussion. Now does it matter what type of it is? He explains that, look, Ibn Rajab explains, وَعَلَمْ أَنَّ الْمُسْكِرَ الْمُزِيلِ الْعَقَلِ نَوْعَانِ Then understand, know, that the intoxicants that take away a person's intellect is two types. One is one which is enjoyable. One is one which is used recreationally. And the other one is the one that is not used enjoyably, the one that is not used recreationally. He's making a very important distinction which applies to our day and age tremendously. Things that intoxicate. It can be something that is used for, for enjoyment, it can be used for something that is used recreationally, and sometimes it's something that is not used recreationally, something that is not used for enjoyment. There's two broad categories. The category that is used recreationally, that people use for any sort of enjoyment that they gain out of it. That without question is haram across the boards, no questions asked. And he goes to the extent of explaining, it doesn't matter whether that thing is something which is he mentions regardless of whether that thing is something which is solid or liquid. Regardless of whether it's something which is eaten or it's drunk. Right? Edibles. It doesn't matter if it's something which is made from grain or from fruit or from milk. It doesn't matter what it comes from. And he, then he mentions by name. By this definition, even hashish. He uses the word hashish. Even marijuana, even weed. Right? Even these things, it falls under this category. And anything else that is consumed for the sake of bringing on this intoxication, if it has the root cause of being something that is used recreationally, across the board, there's no question about, asked about this. Everyone is in a complete agreement, it's outright haram. Why? It's because 
for a person to recreationally deprive themselves of the dhikr of Allah, recreationally cut themselves off from Allah, this person is recreationally choosing to become disconnected from Allah. What can be considered to be more foolish, more blameworthy than that? So any type of intoxicant that is used in a recreational sense, there is no question there. It is not permissible to be used. Then he discusses the next category. And this is where a lot of important questions come up. There's another category of things that do intoxicate. We see they have the effect of intoxicating, but there is not a recreational purpose behind it. What about that? He explains that most of the ulama are of the opinion that if those things are used out of dire necessity, how do you determine dire necessities, brothers and sisters? Number one, don't fool yourself. Ask yourself this question. That can I explain this to Allah? Am I happy with this answer to Allah? Don't ask, can I justify this to my friend? You know, don't, don't ask, can I justify this to my neighbor? Don't ask, I'm, I'm not saying anyone here. I have the, we have the hope that nobody here is in that category. But we see that this happens to our friends. We see this happens to our family. We see this happens to maybe loved ones. Ask them this question. That do not explain it to me. Explain it to Allah. Don't explain it to me. Be honest between you and Allah. Because this is ultimately you cutting yourself off from Allah. You cutting off this great tool that helps you get close to Allah, you're using it to become more distant from Him. There is, remember what we mentioned, recreationally there's no disagreement there. Recreationally no intoxicants are okay. But if there's a genuine need, there's a genuine need, and for a person that really wants to be honest with themselves, go and consult with, a, with an honest Muslim doctor. Go and consult themselves with an honest Muslim alim. Speak to both. Speak to a mufti, speak to a righteous Muslim doctor. Don't go to a Muslim doctor that doesn't even pray. Go to a Muslim doctor that values his deen. Ask them and ask a mufti. Ask them both. That's how you can properly determine, is there a genuine need here or not? The other day we were talking to a friend of ours who was going through an intense medical situation. He asked a Muslim doctor. Muslim doctor told him, yes, your situation it might be valid. The point being here is there is a discussion when certain intoxicants are not used recreationally. Not used for the sake of enjoyment, but they're used with a genuine need for the sake of treatment of some illness. Is there some ben there is a genuine benefit there that is going to help this individual? And the person is in need of it. There might not be an alternative for it. Or the alternative may be more harmful or more destructive than this. Then yes, there is scope according to many other ulama, that that is in a situation where a person can use that. And we see people using that all the time, painkillers. Painkillers is an ideal example. The point being is, there has to be that genuine need, and my brothers and sisters, do not allow a person to you know, delude themselves, make mashwara with the ulama about your situation. When a person is in that situation, then what? He explains that yes, in that situation, there may be scope for a person to use it. However, however, even then, what was the actual practice that we saw from many of the Salaf? Is even then, they hated and they detested that state of intoxication so much that even many of them would refuse to use it. Ibn Rajab quotes this example of Urwa bin Zubair. Who was Urwa bin Zubair? Urwa bin Zubair is, is, a word, is a name worthy of being known. Especially this is a gathering where we discuss the hadith of the Prophet. Anyone that discusses the hadith of the Prophet should know this name. Urwa bin Zubair. Rahimahullah ta'ala, the son of the Sahabi radiallahu an. In one of the most illustrious ulama of, of all time, one of the most illustrious ulama from the ta tabi'een. 
right? Where this is a gathering of hadith, we should know this name of Urwa bin Zubair. Who was Urwa bin Zubair? A little bit of an introduction to him. Urwa bin Zubair was that tabi'i who was the direct student of Aisha radiallahu anha. One of the closest students of Aisha radiallahu anha. Why? Because she was his nep- he, was his, he, he was her nephew. Who was Urwa bin Zubair? First of all, he's Urwa bin Zubair. Who is Zubair? Zubair ibn Awam. One of the Ashar Mubashara, one of the ten companions that the Prophet in this very life promised him paradise. A very close companion of the Prophet. ﷺ. A very close companion of the Prophet. ﷺ. One of the ten promised paradise. This was his son. Who was his mother? His, maswa, his mother was Asma bint Abi Bakr. Right? The, the sister of Aisha radiallahu anha. One of the people that was one of the early Muslims, one of the people that when the Prophet was going for hijrah, who's the one that prepared the provisions of the Prophet? It was Asma bin Zubair, Aswa, Asma bint Abi Bakr. That she herself, she had a sash that she was wearing. She was in such a rush preparing the, 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 um, preparing the, uh, the provisions for the Prophet and Abu Bakr for the hijrah. She just tore it off, she ripped it, and she tied the provisions with it. Right? She was known as. Uh, 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 right? The, the person of the two sashes. The people thought that this was like a disrespectful thing to say to her. She said, no, this is an honorable thing to me. The people say to me. The person of the two sashes. Because do you know why they say that to me? It's because this is the story of the hijrah that happened. So that was his father, this is his mother. His auntie, Aisha radiallahu anha. His khala, Aisha radiallahu anha. This is why she was such a close student of, of hers. Her grandfather, Abu Bakr radiallahu anha. Right? Everyone knows Abu Bakr radiallahu anha. Right? His elder brother, Abdullah bin Zubair, radiallahu anhumah, another sahaba. Right? One of the people that fought for the, for the protection of, of, of Makkah, one of the people that, that, that fought against some of the oppressors that, that came later on in Islamic history. This was his family, this was his upbringing. Right? That his, literally, his father, his mother, his grandfather, his grandmother, right? His, 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 his grandmother on the other side. Who was she? Safiya, radiallahu anha, the aunt of the Prophet. Right? This is his relationship with the Prophet ﷺ. Right? Like literally, in every way, shape, and form, connected, right? So this is Urwa bin Zubair, he was a tabi'i though. He didn't see the Prophet ﷺ with his own eyes. But he grew up in that household, and he was dedicated to learning. He was dedicated to knowledge. He was one of the great ulama from the tabi'in. Urwa bin Zubair, so now that we know who he is, what, did he, what happened to him? There was a situation that happened where he had some illness in his foot. I think he had gangrene. Right? From the, def- the description, it sounds like gangrene. A situation came about where he had this disease in his foot and they had to cut it off. So when it came time that he had to cut it off, the doctors came to him and said, we're going to give you something to drink. It's going to take away your intellect for a bit so that you don't feel any pain. We're going to chop off your foot. Not like brothers, we've got to yank out a tooth. Right? We're going to give you some Novocaine. Not, not like something like, you know what, you, you, know, you have a cut in your arm, so we're going to give you some, some pain meds, right? No, we have to chop off your foot. The doctors came to him and said, we need to chop off your foot. So we're going to give you some medicine to drink that will, will cover up your senses so you don't feel the pain. He says, no way. He says, no way. He said, I cannot ponder that, that, that I would take such a beverage, such a drink, such a thing will be created that will take away from me my senses that I can then like, I won't know my Lord. I will be in a state, I won't know who Allah is 
For a brief moment, I, I can't do that. Literally, told them to operate without it. Brothers and sisters, this is how serious they were, this concept of taking away a person's intellect was. That literally given the choice of taking, taking away the senses for the sake of surgery, he said, you don't want to forget it. I would rather deal with the pain than to be in a state where I can't recognize my Lord. He said in another narration it mentions that I cannot drink something that will separate between me and the remembrance of my Lord. So, how, so what we mentioned, we mentioned that yes, in certain situations out of need, a person can stay away from it. But let us also understand the severity of it nevertheless. We're not talking about permissibility. We're talking about a person. That if a person wanted to realize it, realize it with that attitude. Realize it with that understanding. That this is how grave that situation is. There may be permissibility for it. We're not saying that, you know what, if you're in a situation in the hospital, they're about to do surgery, they're like, you know what, no, don't knock me out. Understand, Urwa bin Zubair was who he was. Right? He was in that rank. It's okay for a person to get knocked out for surgery. It's okay for a person to take pain meds because of intense pain. We're not talking about that situation. But what we're saying is, when a person is in, in that situation where they're in that gray area, and they don't know, we're talking about in our context, if a person is in that gray area, and we're not sure, should I take this or should I not take this? Weigh it heavily, weigh it intently, and then based on the consultation of the ulama, based on the consultation of the, of, of the righteous doctors, make a decision based on that. Yes, there's scope in that situation. If a person took it, inshallah, they will not be in sin. Understanding that and understanding this reality, we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that He saves us from every falling into that situation and that disease of, of, of intoxicants. Beyond this, there's much more that can be said about the harms of it, but I think inshallah this is sufficient for the, for the scope of our, of our time and our program. We'll end with that. The main takeaway at the end is remember this key point. Recreational, never. Right? Alcohol, not only alcohol, any intoxicant, recreationally is never okay. Brothers and sisters, I, let me just talk, touch on this. I, was gonna, I forgot I was going to mention this. Look at this huge opioid crisis that is happening in America right now. Like literally people, by the abuse of using it medically, by the abuse of using it medically, one of the biggest causes of the opioid crisis is people go to the doctors for this, that, and the other. Doctors, well, that's why I said go to a righteous Muslim doctor. Doctors, that are not, you know, doing their due diligence, they're prescribing opioids, and people get hooked on them. And then when their prescription gets yanked, they go for the treat versions. And now what happens, you have this huge crisis. I had a, we have a doctor friend, he was sharing this with us. He says, how could there not be this huge opioid crisis? He says, I see within, from within the medical profession. He, said, he mentioned a certain uh, disease of the stomach. I forgot exactly what he had mentioned. I don't know if you're there when Dr. Salim was sharing with us. He had mentioned this point, right? That there's a certain disease of the, of the stomach or the abdomen. That if a person comes in, right off the bat, if a person prescribed that person is so painful, that right off the bat, you can, a doctor can prescribe them opioids, no questions asked. But if a person wanted to sit down and get to the bottom of what is truly plaguing them, do everything they can to avoid doing that, do their due diligence, first of all, it's going to take a lot more time. But he says, second of all, the doctor that prescribes opioids, he can bill at the highest level. Because that's considered to be a complex thing. Right off the bat, you can do top level billing. And the person who's trying to figure out what's plaguing that individual, what's harming that individual, what's causing that individual's problems, 
You ask all the questions, maybe you find out, you know what, you don't need opioids, you can take something else. Well, now you're going to be able to build at the bottom level. You spend all this time and energy, you won't make as much money. Give the opioids, you'll make more money. What happens? More and more people are put on this opioids, more and more people are put on these painkillers, and what ends up happening? Bit by bit, people get into this addiction. So the abuse of this, it, the abuse even starts from the medical side. We're not saying there aren't legitimate cases. We're not saying that there aren't legitimate needs. But understand, the abuse of things that are legitimate leads to things that are ultimately illegitimate. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala save us. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala save our families and our friends and our loved ones. Sallallahu ta'ala ala khali khalaki Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Bi rahmatiki ar-rahman ar-rahimin wa alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen.